The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs on this station. Good evening, and welcome to Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm Michael Dow, running the show once again tonight, despite what our producer, John Roberts, may think, or <laughs> uh, the erstwhile efforts of Sue Timberlake to contain me. <laughs> <laughs> I am irrepressible. Wait till it gets to the Senate. <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> I have to carry two-thirds there in order to get my way, so that's harder. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about uh, uh, impeachment, perhaps, and maybe a few other uh, important issues of note. But uh, before we do that, I do just want to say that we love, as always, to hear from our listeners. And you can get in touch with us in a few different ways. First, you can email us, civilpoliticsradio at valleyfreeradio.org. You can tweet at us at CivilPoliticsFM. And Facebook.com slash CivilPoliticsRadio is our community there. We do also have our own very special bespoke website, CivilPoliticsRadio.com, where we post recordings of previous episodes of the show, uh, supplemental episodes that we do, and uh, links to things we think is interesting. Things we think are interesting. Yes. And you ruined it. I did. You ruined it, and now we're off the air. I, oh, <laughs> aw. <laughs> but how will I be able to hear my own voice? <laughs> so uh, while we're playing along, genre is trying to keep us honest. We'll be uh, trying to throw up links to things that seem relevant, and he will be using the hashtag civil references, as he does, to make it easier for you to play along at home uh, and find things on Twitter and or Facebook. So, so uh, yeah. What, uh, a, what a week it was, yet again. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's focus on uh, U.S. domestic politics for a little bit, uh, unlike the, the, the big news. And uh, we do have a, a special guest we'll be talking to a little later in the episode. But uh, first and foremost, so, Sue, as our card-carrying uh, GOP partisan... Uh, Only Republican in Western Mass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or in the Valley, anyway. I don't know. <laughs> well, you're a compassionate conservative, unironically. So, uh, I yeah. would never label myself that. But. I know. That's part of why it's actually... <laughs> so you're teasing me again? No, I'm not, actually. I'm saying you're a conservative <laughs> with actual compassion. It's, oh, oh. I don't think it happens often enough. But I'm you... a real Republican like they used to be. Sue, so, so you have compassion. I'm okay. Sorry. All right, then. (laughs) Another chocolate bar for you. (laughs) You see? You see? Compassion. You see? So, um, yeah, what did you think about the hearings that we've had? I I was away last week, so I didn't get to chat with you guys about uh, the hearings before the the Intelligence Committee and then the Judiciary Committee, which seemed like quite a circus to me. But So what do you think of it all? Well, as a feminist, my guys are so strident and screechy. 
I just couldn't believe their testimony. You I know, couldn't even listen to it, and I'm a Republican. I think it would I just, help if they smiled more, don't you? <laughs> I don't, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough to watch. And I just got a note from one of the head the head of the GOP here in Massachusetts saying, "Help us." Um, uh, Galvin is not paying enough attention to his own rule of the election, and Weld cannot run in the primary as a Republican because he was a Libertarian it, last January, and so he hasn't been a Republican for a year, so they're going to prevent him from being on the primary in here in Massachusetts. But the primaries in uh, March. M- March 3rd, yeah. But they're saying that he, he, couldn't, he, can't, he can't sign up to be on the ballot because he hasn't been a Republican for a whole year. That's my party is telling the former governor, former Republican <laughs> governor of Massachusetts. I mean, it's gamesmanship. It's it's. I mean, I love games. I mean, I I yes, I do. like game theory. And you love people throwing <laughs> power around. I like people know how to use power, and I guess Galvin does, but I don't know who knows. Wait, so the, Galvin's the one doing it? Who's no, the head I, of the Republican Party? Uh, Jim Lyons. Who? Jim Lyons. Okay. Yeah, I don't always recognize. It's like the I have no The idea head of the is. RNC is Romney's niece. Rona. Wait, the Republican National Committee is Mitt Romney's niece? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. So guess how that helped silence him in the South. I know. It's, yeah, it's there all... was a whole thing between uh, she was she was really defending the president and he was yeah. like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, she wants to keep her job. So anyway, it's very hard to watch. I, I think the only thing Mitt Romney really listens to is money. No, I think he listens to Anna's wife. Have you ever met her? Have you ever seen No, her? I haven't. <laughs> he listens to her. Is she the one who put the dog on the roof? No, no. <laughs> oh, that was a low blow. She wears the pants in the family for sure. <laughs> oh, how interesting for the Mormons. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I think she converted. She was like a Welch proletariat or something. I don't know. Anyway. Well, you know, if you're going to sell out, you might as well sell high. Uh, yeah. So uh, She manages those five sons of his. So. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, yeah, so uh, I agree it was a, a, a embarrassing circus full of sound and fury signifying nothing uh, on the well, Republican sig- side. Well, it signifies something. It's just, yeah, it's just very hard to watch. It's just... There's no motion. It's like it's like this repeating the same things over and over again. Well, I thought uh, uh, Congressman Swalwell from uh, California. Oh yeah, he ran for president, but he dry- yeah. I didn't know who he was. He's actually fun to watch. He actually makes you know articulate. He's clean and and articulate. He is articulate, and yes. I'm saying that to torment He's very genre well because yes, exactly. He's not um, gonna. He's not paying any attention to us. So yeah, why would he? Never do. Yeah. <laughs> What was that? <laughs> that we were saying Swalwell was clean and articulate. Very clean. clean Very well cut. spoken. Well spoken. Okay. <laughs> Why do I pay attention to you? <laughs> yeah, shut off our mics right now. I honestly have been wondering for over 10 years. <laughs> so, um, yes. <laughs> so, anywho, I thought he had a, a good moment where he was saying, look, these facts aren't in dispute. You know, the president did ask did say, we want a favor. Uh, uh, his chief of staff in a press conference did say, oh, yeah, there absolutely was a quid pro quo. That's how it works. You know, like like all of these things, all of these damning facts aren't haven't been disputed by any of the Republicans, uh, any of the witnesses they wanted to call. And he's like, so, guys, just just call me out. Which one of you is saying that didn't happen? 
And I mean, I know there's a certain amount of grandstanding to that because, of course, like it's not a call and response when you're talking in the house. Yeah, you can't respond. You have to go through the right your point of order kind of thing. But nevertheless, you know, he said like, "Hey, show of hands, guys," and uh-huh. nobody raised their hand. And and. And it's a fair point. Oh, well, they're probably ignoring him because that's that's how they're behaving. I mean, that's the really hard part because I happen to love sort of civil politics. I happen to believe in the system of laws. Is that why you and John created the show, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) And Stefan and you. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm a hired gun. John brought me on. You guys already wanted to do it. Yeah, well, and and it's... It's really important, and it, it's really hard to watch that on the national level because they are talking past each other, clearly, all of them on some level. And, you know, I can't really say this on the air, but I think, you know, from a just a principal point of view, it, you, you, this has to happen. I mean, you, yeah. can't, you can't let a president do what he's doing. Yeah, and I, I think— Just uh, on the obstruction of Congress side. I mean, Clinton didn't do it. Nixon didn't do it. Who knows what Johnson did? I don't know. But the other <laughs> impeachables— <laughs> J- Johnson had ways of bullying people in the men's room that were, you know— Oh, no, I meant the Johnson that was impeached. Oh, Andrew Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was—yeah, that was the, the four I was going for. So I guess tomorrow he'll join—well, no, then it goes to the House next week, right? I mean— uh, There'll be a—the full House has to what vote out the today? articles of impeachment. Today is Friday the 13th. Ooh. <laughs> and they had the vote this morning. Perfect. Yeah. It's a lucky day. Yeah, well, uh, for some of us. Um, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I want to— Hold off till later, but I, I I think we should at least briefly talk about the uh, uh, election Brexit? results in Brexit? Britain. Well, it was. <laughs> I mean, they're all about Brexit, but I like that guy Boris Johnson. I know you do. Which <laughs> you I, think he's an idiot? I know. I think I, I'm certain he's a racist. But anyway, we'll talk You're about. You're certain, huh? <laughs> well, based on him saying things like Africa would be better off under British colonial rule, still, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much definitional racism. So, yeah. But anyway. um, uh, Is that like Trump saying, what have you got to lose to the entire (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Nation of... (laughs) A little bit. Okay. (laughs) Except it's more like Trump saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be under the brutal military occupation of us? (laughs) So, but anyway. um, So Brexit, he won. Well, I think, have they counted all the votes? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, conservative He got a landslide, yeah. Yeah. Well, and part of it is that he... He only got like 40-something percent of the vote, but that's a conservative landslide But he co-opted the folks that, um, the labor, which I thought was a very interesting maneuver. Well, we can we can talk about that. And later I, with our guest, I'm hoping right. that we talk about sort of that ability e- ex- to exactly because I think that is relevant to, to the topic of of the book. Um, but before we we get into that, I just wanted to I wanted to have a senior moment and forget what the <laughs> heck I was trying to Brexit, pivot to. Sorry, no, <laughs> it was about uh, American politics. Oh, just um, the I think the. Uh, the the sort of the two talking points that I've I thought from the GOP that were most uh, uh, potentially persuasive and most ultimately empty were like one is like well this is an attempt to subvert the uh, will of the people in the 2016 election have they read the Constitution well a yes <laughs> but b uh, let's say you know, rocks fall, and suddenly there there's only Democrats left in the Senate through some horrible tragedy, and the Democrats all vote to convict on the motion of impeachment. Uh, Mike Pence becomes president. 
who was elected in 2016 in the same election as Donald Trump. Like that's that's not subverting oh, the election. Oh, I'm doing election. I see your yeah. argument. Sorry, I was having trouble. F- okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, like, gotta... like, yeah. It's 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 removing Trump from office, but it's not undoing the results of the election because the election specifically appointed his backup. Yeah. So, and the other thing. Uh, is that I, I've seen a lot of people say that this sort of thing should be handled at the ballot box, that this is ultimately a political dispute that should be resolved through an election. And I think I, I think there's problems with that with that argument uh, in terms you know in terms of like how we run our country, but um, I think it misses the fundamental point like why this, this is the line that the Democrats are drawing about articles of impeachment because Trump is attempting to rig the next election. He's trying to use his power as president. If people to believe your scales. party. Well, uh, sure. But I mean, like, if people don't believe our party, that means they're also not believing the things President Trump has actually said. The transcripts, you know, the telcons that he's released to the public. Yeah, those were summaries. The, those weren't transcripts. I right. appreciate they're, you calling them telcons, by the way. Right. I really do. That, that's that's what that they are. Makes my head explode anytime Telephone someone communications? says. Telephone communications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're uh, not. That they're, they're transcripts. They're they're not like summaries. They're called telcons. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in the lingo of the biz, the uh. jargon. But so that's a whole separate thing. Uh, uh, you know, like when one side is attempting to rig the election, that's when you can't say like, well, you've got to resolve this at the ballot box. By the way, we got to stuff it first. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's like, well, what, you know. how much foresight did our founding fathers have to put this in? I mean, I think that's the amazing thing to me. Because uh, I, well, I know many governments where there's no recall, there is no other avenue. You well, know, there's a lot of fair, states where that stuff doesn't exist. Fair enough. So, founding fathers, I mean, they could, they that could, was pretty smart. I think the people who drafted our articles of government could have done a better job, but they certainly could have done a worse job. <laughs> so, um, you yeah. want to say something about Brexit, or are we done with Brexit? I, I, I was just rejoicing that I, Boris won. So. I know you are. Uh, we, I, you know. Uh, the election was, I think, really about Brexit in some ways. But like, I think let's let's pivot to uh, uh, bring in our, our guest here. Uh, I wanted to say me. one thing. Go ahead. I'm going to post an article that said uh, Bor- the the Tories won the, the election. Boris Johnson might be the last uh, prime minister to preside over a united kingdom. Almost certainly. Oh, because of Scotland. Yeah. Oh, and Northern Ireland. Scotland. Scotland is. Um, has they might they're like 50 50 on on, so it's not just brexit it's like breaking up the uk the 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 uk i think this is i think this is a fascinating topic yeah and i i think next week like i said i'm (laughs) gonna be posting an article that i read about that so well i'd like to bring in our special guest who's kind enough to join us here in the studio and who's been waiting while i adored that my own dulcet tones and that's who get in a word here and there so uh, I want to welcome uh, Professor... And he stayed even through that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't run as soon as he heard our and, behavior. And held his gorge. <laughs> um, so uh, Professor Cedric DeLeon uh, from uh, Professor of Sociology at UMass and the director of the Labor Center there. Uh, uh, Cedric, welcome to Civil Politics. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you've written a book that I really enjoyed reading uh, called Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, 
which obviously uh, you wrote focusing on American politics. But part of the reason why I was like, yeah, I kind of want to talk about the British election, but I kind of don't want to do it before introducing you because, like, there is also an instance of political parties struggling with maintaining their consent to rule. And it's more complicated because it's not just a two-party system. But it's also somewhat outside the scope of your book. <laughs> and since a good part of your book is historical analysis, uh, as, you know, uh, someone who somewhere in the past earned a master's in history, uh, I can tell you that, like, it's hard to uh, extrapolate too far from specific historical events to stuff that's happening in other countries and times and places and so forth. But yeah. Um, actually, so before, before we get into that though, uh, why don't you t tell our listeners, because uh, I think it's cool and I want to make sure people hear about it. Uh, uh, what is the labor center at UMass? What do you do as director? So the UMass Amherst labor center is the, one of the last remaining union side graduate uh, leadership training programs in the country. Um, most of our students are rank-and-file union members and union staff. They learn things like labor law, employment law, collective bargaining, strategic search, that sort of thing. Um, we're also a research institute, so we do a lot of applied research for civil society organizations, including unions, and we do our own scholarly research also. Um, so. Uh, so that's what that's what it does. It's a it's a it's a graduate program and um, and also a, a, a research center. What do you mean last remaining? It's it's one of the last remaining uh, union side um, labor centers because most um, most of the folks who used to do what we still do um, have um, gone the way. Uh, of management. So in order to stay alive, they've become sort of human resources um, uh, oh. graduate programs. Is that where the money is? Or is that the Certainly. reason? Is like that, the UMass yeah. Business School. Well, I can't remember the name of it. Eisenberg. That's a lot. Uh, yeah. So um, there are some that are kind of half and half, um, but the labor side is often uh, much weaker and, and under-resourced. The UMass uh, Labor Center is unapologetically um, union side. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, and alive and well also. Good, good. Uh, uh, I know as a, as a sometime business owner, I should be probably virulently anti-union because you workers are getting all uppity, but I, 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 I really like unions and I, I kind of miss being part of one back in the day. <laughs> so. I was actually, I, when the, when the, the union for the, um, the, uh, the Hotel? TAs, the oh, Geo, the, the G yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually at UMass when that was formed. It was really, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it was really a wonderful time. <laughs> um, a lot of people were very happy about it, uh, and I'm really happy that you know it's 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 been continuing since then. It's really a benefit to the school. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, no, it's you know um, a generation ago, most of the credit hours were taught by tenure track and tenured faculty and now about half of those credit hours are taught by um, casualized graduate labor and also adjunct lecturers right oh um, yeah so uh, substitute substituted for yes yeah. that's right I mean the, the corporatization of the university has led folks to to actually you know create a, a gigantic cheap labor force to do the teaching that tenured and tenure track professors used to do does that happen in the football program too <laughs> you mean unionization? No, I uh, meant substituting labor for 
you know, sort of instead of having like a, a football coach that's paid gazillions of dollars, they f- they farm off all the work to other people. I just wondered the structure of it if it's because that's, oh, that's a money so interesting. should, but they <laughs> probably don't. Yeah, <laughs> just a, just as no, Sue. It's a great. It's a it's a great point. Actually, um, a historian of um, of the civil rights movement referred to um, college football as having the oh, the whiff, interesting. the whiff of a plantation. The whiff. <laughs> I. I I, I know I'm a country club wasp, but I mean, like, the whole thing about college athletics, like the NCAA, especially in those top-tier things. I mean, like, you know, like I went to Kenyon College, which is, you know, Division three, and basically they got swimmers. We got swimmers, and that's about it. And we're serious about the swimmers, and that's about it. But, I mean, like, that's still, like, pretty clearly, like, like – I knew people on the swim team when I was there. And, like, you know, they worked hard to swim, but they were also smart students who worked hard at their studies. Mm. You know, like, it's, like, and there was no, like, well, you know, of course I'm going to go on to big swimming after this. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just a totally different uh, uh, kettle of fish, the way that, uh, you know, uh, student athletes are basically uh, exploited for their labor. They don't, they certainly don't get any of the financial rewards. And I, I, I don't remember how it all shook out, but I remember that there was a big fight over their likeness rights. Like, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to use these pe- these these people's faces in video games, but we're not going to pay them because, we, of course, we can't sully their amateurism with, you know, sordid profits. Yeah, I think there's a couple of bills introduced right now around some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. That, and I don't know how it will fall out, but, you know, it sounds like it's going to make it to the Supreme Court at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are those, That's one of the major controversies, and of course, the other one is the right to unionize. Whether these, whether these uh, NCAA athletes can actually do some collective bargaining with the NCAA and big college sports. So, um, I mean, I, I think whatever your position on it, um, what these conflicts suggest is, you know, um, is that there's a lot of exploitation happening and there's a question now of how to how to address that um because the fact of the matter is is that college athletes get nothing uh you know they they get scholarships but scholarships that's sort of like funny money that's the university kind of like moving money around or like not charging uh, right. right they're not actually paying them to do anything and actually many college athletes uh you know at, at, at umass are are hungry um and um, and are not really getting the benefit of the education that they are in theory. Yeah, receiving. their hours are correct really spoken for. Right, yeah. that's right because they're full time workers. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, and apparently that's that's a hard thing to do: go to college and work full time. You bet. Yeah. So, uh, well, we're <laughs> geez, we're almost to the halfway point. But thank you. That was I. I you know, I, I like to to call out uh, and and give a shout out to to cool organizations like the Labor Center. Um, so, uh, tell us a little. Give us the 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 ballpark or thumbnail summary of what Crisis is about, because I think the author will do a better job than than I shall. So, <laughs> if you don't mind. Sure. Um, crisis compares uh, political crises in the United States from the U.S. Civil War to the Great Depression and uh, the election of Donald Trump. And what I try to show is that in each one of these uh, particular historical moments, um, uh, the country goes through what I call a crisis sequence Mm -hmm. um, from an unexpected event, what I call a contingency, Mm -hmm. to a mass defection on the ground, 
From a political party. From a political party to another political party. Mm -hmm. An attempt on the part of the political establishment to reabsorb that defection. And then depending on whether or not the establishment succeeds, you can have either crisis or the containment of, of the crisis. Uh, and you you can see that in each one of those um, those episodes. In the case of the Civil War and the election of Donald Trump, you have a bona fide crisis of hegemony. By by that, what I mean is, you know, the the establishment loses the consent to rule, and you also have this phenomenon of party fracture and polarization. In the case of the Depression, the New Deal Democratic Party is able to co-opt all the kind of revolutionary elements on the ground farmers, workers, uh, socialists, and communists, and basically bring them back to the primrose path of politics as usual. They had to concede a lot. They had to concede the welfare state, um, but, um, but they were able to actually stop that crisis from, from, uh, from becoming what many feared was a, was a socialist revolution in the offing. Well, I mean, uh, as I just recently learned from a Another friend of mine at UMass, uh, uh, you know, like I think it was Milwaukee was actually basically mm. occupied uh, by a socialist workers collective that drove out the police force and was ready to fight off the National Guard. So, you know, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And that was that was common throughout the country. Farmers and workers were fighting against uh, employers, against police and other uh, and other state officials in the street. I mean, it was, uh, it, it, I, I think it is safe to say that, um, that there was, there was, there was something uh, big in the offing. And unless the party system did something to head that off at the pass, uh, they were careening towards some kind of mass insurgency or rebellion. People talked openly about it. Journalists did. Politicians did. Business people did. Um, and 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 you know. And so I think it's important to kind of like to to talk, to think about the New Deal not not in the sense of you know the Democratic Party gifted workers and farmers all of these great things because they were really nice. The Democratic Party gifted workers and farmers all of these things because they were scared. They were terrified of the alternative which was uh, unfolding before their eyes. Madame la guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really simplistic and I don't come from a history background but um, in France right now they're they're mucking around with the pensions and it seems like it's really like one of those kinds of events that they're trying to straighten out their economy but people are really fracturing over it or in Hong Kong people are sort of fracturing those are sort of events and they're multifaceted but they're small events compared to what you just described but they could become more like that kind of an event where it's sort of all the different factions because you know they haven't really driven out the police yet and they haven't really you know but you're saying this is sort of a, a critical incident that kind of progresses and starts to almost get away from and the consent to rule is really the that the, there really is a almost a you're at the edge of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's it's good that you actually bring us back to the present in, uh, in Hong Kong and France because, you know, the Great Depression wasn't just an economic 
calamity in the United States. It was an international calamity, the worst economic depression that many countries had ever seen up until that point um, well, in history. Part of that's because some of them hadn't existed. You know, yeah, well, like of course, 20 or 30 of course. Years before, but. But, I, but I think, but what, what's, what's the, the, the thing that I want to underscore here is that, you know, um, it was at that point that folks either turned far left or far right. Right, you had the ascendancy of many socialist and communist governments in that period, but also a turn to fascism in Germany and Italy. Yeah, uh, I I can't remember who it was because it was 18 years ago that I remember reading like a fascinating book by a French historian who basically sort of encapsulated as like the idea was like democracy, liberal democracy is dying. And what will succeed it? Will it be communism or fascism? It certainly can't be, you know, muddling along with popular sovereignty. That's crazy. So <laughs> and and so like 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 that whole middle part of the 20th century for a lot for a lot of people was sort of conceived as like the fight between, you know, fascism and and sort of the revolution of the peoples. Yes, and I, I think, you know, getting back to, to Sue's point about Hong Kong and France, what you're seeing around the world is a turn left, or a, and, and you have turns right and turns left, right? Bolivia uh, as well. Bolivia as well, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and in the, you know, in, in the United States, I think we're in an equally kind of undecidable point. On the one hand, you have the ascendancy of a white ethnic nationalist in Donald Trump. But on the other hand, you're seeing, you know, for the first time, really in a generation of sort of wide scale strike wave and, and, and insurgency on the ground, not right. just by labor. Right. The teachers, that's right. All the, st all the teachers and all the different that's states. That's right. And, and the yeah. climate strike. Yeah, that's right. So, in, so just just to throw out a statistic there, in, sure. two, in, two, in 2017, something like 20,000 workers went on strike in the U.S. in the United States. Mm -hmm. In 2019, it's upwards of a half a million workers have gone on strike. That is a gigantic shift, and that's not even that's not even counting the mass insurgency that happens in Puerto Rico. That's a 25 times increase. Yeah, and oh my God, that was amazing. That's amazing, that was, that was amazing, right? And so, and, I, and you, you have- I was, I don't know about you, but I was like, oh God, why can't we do that? And and they're the and it sounds cool too, like, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I- people suck. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think that you're, you, I, I think that, that, that Trump's ascendancy, but also these popular movements on the ground, suggests that we're we're really at a at a moment in in American political history where we're still trying to decide which way to go. I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, one way we're going to go right now is to take a short break to play some PSAs, promos, and station IDs, and keep the FCC happy. And then uh, we'll be back with uh, talk more with Professor uh, Cedric de Leon about his de Leon, sorry, <laughs> uh, about his really cool new book, Crisis: When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. Uh, this is Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Sundays at 10 a.m., WXOJ's radio show, Occupy the Airwaves, has the latest news from the occupation movement locally, regionally, nationally, and around the planet. Tune in at 103.3 FM or webcasting at www.valleyfreeradio.org. Blogging at occupytheairwaves.wordpress.com. Listeners can call into the show at 413-585-1033. 
Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. This is Professor Howard Zinn. The independent, non-commercial radio station you're listening to is really important in the maintenance of democracy. Thomas Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a reasonable manner. So if you care about being informed, if you care about democracy, if you're a reasonable person, you are, of course. Please support your source for uncensored news and views and the voice of your community. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. For all the best in Americana, check out Roots and More Tuesday morning from 7 to 9. From blues, folk and rock to Cajun, Zydeco and alternative country, Roots and More brings you emerging artists, new releases and older favorites. Tune in Tuesday morning from 7 to 9 on Valley Free Radio. Are you interested in connecting with the international community in the Pioneer Valley? Then volunteer to help your immigrant neighbors improve their English and integrate better into their surroundings. Become a volunteer tutor. Take a free 15-hour training taught by the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. For more details on an application, go to ili.edu or contact Amy at ili.edu. Students come from Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So volunteer to tutor and expand your world. The Oblivion Express, old-school, free-form, eclectic radio programming every Thursday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Since 1981, the Oblivion Express has been traveling the musical spaceways in the valley an eclectic mix of music from the 1940s to today and featuring just about every genre, rock, jazz, blues, world, folk, reggae, and so much more. Join me, DJ Funkadelic Fern, every Thursday morning on the Oblivion Express. VFR listeners, this is Bob Balo. I'm at the controls in the VFR studio every Monday morning from 6 till 9 a.m. I play music and I talk. And I give the time and temperature. Also, I drink a lot of coffee. Then I go home. But I faithfully return every Monday morning, 6 till 9 a.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Have you always loved to read but find it hard to do these days? Forbes Library offers a variety of alternatives to keep you reading long into the night. A large selection of large print books, audiobooks, and easy-to-use e-books and e-audiobooks are available to borrow. You will find bestsellers, classics, and nonfiction offerings. Forbes Library is now affiliated with the National Library Service to provide audiobooks, magazines, and even the daily news for people with vision loss, difficulty holding traditional book or newspaper formats, and for people with certain learning disabilities. Our staff is happy to help you find just the book in just the right format. Call 413 413- Five eight seven one zero one three to find out more. 
And we're back with Civil Politics here on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM out of Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm still Michael Dow. I'm still joined, as usual, by John Roberts pushing the buttons and yes. Sue Timberlake pushing my buttons. <laughs> but we have a special my guest. My life's work. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Professor Cedric de Leon from uh, UMass Amherst. Professor of Sociology, Director of the Labor Center, and author of the actually very good new book, Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. So uh, That was published Stanford published? Stanford University yeah. this year, I believe. Yeah, and, and genre's going to be putting up uh, on our site and through the various social medias uh, links to uh, the information you gave him on like w- your work and how to contact you or any, any of that stuff you told him. I wasn't That's listening. right. But Charmer did that. He's good. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, always on duty. Yes. <laughs> so um, uh, why don't you uh, run us through like the the, the central sort of uh, process? Because like it, it's it's always dicey to sort of say, well, historically there's this pattern that you can see in things. Because I mean, it's like yeah, but there's the times when that doesn't apply, or I'm not sure how helpful that is here, but. It, I think, excuse me, I think it is uh, an interesting lens to look at our current politics and see how it compares to uh, past situations in the U.S. and also to look at other uh, situations around the world, like the U.K. election, which we were touching on a bit, and also like the way Israeli politics have just broken down. Uh, They've called for a third general election uh, in less than 12 months because the first two didn't take, basically. So that's fascinating. So what is the uh, crisis sequence, I guess, that you identify? Like, how does this all go from like, yeah, we got a functional country, it's pretty cool, to, oh, God, oh, God, we're on fire! (laughs) (laughs) Metaphorically. Yeah, no, I I think it's important to note that most of the time we're not in crisis. Most of the time, even if people are grumbling and have grievances, they're willing to let those things be channeled into institutional politics. But every once in a while, there's an unanticipated event that happens, and that really just shakes the political allegiances of the people to their core, right? The contemporary crisis sequence, I argue in this book, is the 2008 Great Recession, the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s, right? So what happens as a result of of that uh, economic downturn and also of the message that the Obama campaign advances this promise of a new new deal right of you know investment in uh, in in infrastructure to put people back to work the employee free choice act and 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 you know regulating wall street all of that stuff right um, you know is 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 an attempt, I think, to to say, listen, stick with me. I'll set you free. We'll 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 create an updated version of the New Deal. And the result is you have the second stage in the crisis sequence, which is a mass defection um, on the ground. And and that happened defection in two thousand eight. In two thousand and eight, yes, from. Uh, from what what was called then, uh, what what Obama called the RFO, Republicans for Obama, um, 
in, in which essentially you have this sort of like sea change and vote in affluent white suburban communities throughout the United States, including in Indiana and North Carolina and yeah. Virginia. You remember these red states that hadn't and gone and Florida, yeah. that had, but Florida had gone Democratic, you know, in, in so the I interim. The, yeah, yeah. But but not in two generations had those particular states ever gone to the Democratic Party, and they flipped in two thousand eight. Okay, so that's 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 episode two in the sequence. But, you know, the political establishment doesn't take a challenge to its power lightly. Right? No, we certainly don't. Yeah, <laughs> right? Uh, so so push back. that's right. There's, there's, there's always an attempt. You can always count on them to try to circle the wagons and basically control their wealth and power, and they do. They try it. They, they try doing that. And that's the hardcore Republican obstructionism that we saw on, ever since then? Yes, on the one hand, but this is a, this is a bipartisan uh, attempt on the part of Clinton Democrats who are centrists, of course, the Democratic Leadership Council being the very powerful uh-huh. uh, uh, ruling faction within the Democratic Party at that time, right. and, the, and the congressional Republicans in concert with, with the Tea Party. Those political organizations are able to suppress the new New Deal. The problem is, and that's so that's so or that's most a, of it. I mean, most uh, of it. Uh, the Affordable Care Act obviously is an exception. Right, right, of course. Um, but th- so that's that thir- that third episode is the reabsorption moment, uh-huh. and then the question is, does the reabsorption strategy of the political establishment succeed or does it backfire? And in this case, I would argue that it backfires very badly. But it backfires on the left and right in very different ways. But and we don't have to go into terrible detail unless you want to unless you want to go into it. But but the the summary is that you know the result of the suppression of the of the Obama agenda fractures the party system so badly, both within the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, mm. that they are unable to stop the ascendancy of Donald Trump. I yes. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. I, I, well, I, I agree with that assessment, and that was part of like, <clears throat> part of why I really uh, uh, like your book is is like um, that person could vote for Obama. Stefan went through this with us, and then they turned around and voted for Trump. And right. it's like, exactly. how did that happen? And it's sort of, it's you got to understand what people were looking at yeah, or what yeah, they, yeah, yeah, why yeah. they, yeah. Well, and, and, and. And it's an enigma, but it's a, it's a response to a response. And it's. Exactly. And, yeah. and it fractures the parties. Uh, absolutely. And. Uh, Hopefully the Democrats more than the Republicans. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, uh, but it sounds it's like both. It's definitely blown yeah. up the Republicans. And, and like, there's nothing left to the National Republican Party except basically a white nationalist organization. I mean, that's all all that's left, really. So that's awesome. <laughs> well, look at just as a counterpoint, look at the look at all the folks that are Republicans that are either deciding to retire or they're sitting quietly on their hands. You know, they're just you almost feel like it's, you know, spring the without the quietly, peepers. I believe are called fellow travelers. Is that the right term? Uh, I don't know. Um, but uh, I useful idiots, something. I don't yeah. Know. So I don't want to simplify it because I think there's a lot of sure. different kinds and, of Republicans. Uh, you know, I mean, and like, a lot of different kinds of Democrats. Clearly, I, I, I think there, are, you know, there's certainly grounds to criticize William Well, the former governor of Massachusetts, but uh, I think there's also things to like about William Weld, uh, 
as I've mentioned, I did vote for him at least once because <gasps> he wasn't a crazy person like John Silver. Um, but uh, and what John Silver did to the unions, right? Yeah. In his <sighs> university. Yeah. Never so, mind. but it is worth noting that uh, uh, Governor Weld is, or uh, is not getting much traction amongst the Republican primary electorate and he's not even being allowed to, to be on the ballot in some states well I mean, they're working on mass and and some of the states have canceled right. primaries so right and that, florida wanted basically wanted a ransom <laughs> yeah 250 000, i forget what it was it was it yeah. was cash money so yeah to even be but but so it's those three steps and then <laughs> i mean that sounds kind of too close to, for comfort, and and your book actually describes how that happened in the Civil War period too. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then what? Well, there there are three paths out of crisis. If, if, if containment doesn't work, if, if mm-hmm. which right. argue, you're arguing like with with the original New Deal, FDR, uh, you know, glorious class trader that he was, <laughs> calling out the special interest. Uh, you know, like okay, yes, fine. All you, all you proles can have all this good stuff. Please don't go to war on us. Please don't riot in the streets. <laughs> and and that worked. And, and, and so, in that power. sense, crisis averted. Yeah, right. And I think so. So uh, let me ask uh, answer Sue's question first. But I oh think yeah, this go is ahead, a, this please. Is, this is a really important point that you that you brought up. Um, uh, um, about dealing with inequality and you know the deprivation in in the streets because I think that that is what the political system has not actually addressed. And I think it's the central scourge of our time. So, but oh, I will absolutely. Say, so what I will say to Sue is that there are tip there. Are, it's somewhat agreed upon that there are three paths out of crisis. One is Caesarism. It's the idea of a kind of charismatic leader who basically leads people uh, out of the the morass, right? Uh, somebody like a, a, a Mussolini or a Hitler. These are the paradigmatic figures in, or, in world or history. Or Caesar crossing the Rubicon, saying like, "We got to sort all this out. Just just let me handle it." Folks. The original, the OG, yeah. Caesar. <laughs> yes. Um, and the second. Don't worry about those half a million people I murdered in Gaul. It's all fine. Right. <laughs> So the second is that the political establishment reexerts its influence, and it, it it does that in different ways throughout history. Sometimes it changes its name. Sometimes they kick out the leaders and they give the give people a brand new set of candidates, uh, or they they offer a new policy agenda. The is th- that the New Deal? That's the New Deal. The so so in a sense that's like a kind of delayed and extended containment effort what it yeah, wasn't enough to sort of say oh yeah we'll totally give you a seat at the table it's like fine no we'll actually give you a seat at the table right exactly okay and then the third is um is a mass insurgency on the ground that essentially um you know doesn't wait for the party system to deliver what they want the people essentially take it um and in doing that, they tend to define, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a policy agenda for a certain amount of time thereafter. But they're a, but but be, the people essentially bring the country, drag the country out of the crisis. So those are those are the three. Those are the three. Would the Civil paths. War be an example of that third one? There is that like uh, is that is that the the the, the breakdown and then. 
something sol- solves it afterwards? Because I mean, you know, the the political crisis of the 18, of you know the eighteen fifties definitely led to you know a bloodbath. Reconstruction ex- is the exertion reexertion of the of the political establishment. Because oh, the North won, and then yeah, so we then, so yeah, that's right. So it's after what, the, we're, the we're, less terrible side won. Yes, we're talking about we're 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 talking about the moment after crisis, and the moment after crisis is Reconstruction. So what you know, what can we say about that? It's not exact. It's not exactly Caesarism, uh, though there are strong figures. Um, it's it's not exactly reconstruction is not a is not a mass insurgency from below if anything it's the political elites finding a way to you know to get along with each other all over again and so so i would say that that's the that's the second path um in the case of the the civil war okay that makes sense that makes sense and as soon as it could be dispensed with uh they were uh uh the the elites decided to, you know, we're happy to knuckle under to the white terrorism of the KKK and the the reaction to Reconstruction and allow Jim Crow to sweep across the, the country. <laughs> yes, Yay. I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess that's so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hooray! I'm, de- I'm depressed. I have to go home now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Well, that, of course, that, that was one of the conditions, right? That, so... The, the the bargain of the political establishment is it's solidified in 1876 when right yeah. um, well, was uh, it Hayes it was Hayes yeah. uh, the Democrats say okay you leave the South because the South was occupied right by the, by the Union Army during Reconstruction if you leave the South and let us do anything we want we'll let you have the White House because Tilden won the popular vote Hayes won the electoral vote. And the Democrats threatened to start another civil war, for all intents and purposes. Uh, so that was the deal. And Grant was too sick to keep going. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Ugh. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm just, <laughs> I have opinions. <laughs> well, this wait is... you. <laughs> Hush now. <laughs> so, sorry, Sue. Go ahead. Well, this is amazing. So, I, 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 I want you to tell us what to do. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. You know, in this environment, I mean, is it climate change that's the that's the movement? Well, I, I think we definitely. <laughs> I think we want to skip Caesarism. <laughs> well, is is there someone out there? I I don't see them. Have we skipped Caesarism? Depends oh, no. on how well Trump uh, manages to hold on to power. I mean, is this it, it, proto Caesarism, like in in your view, or is this a, another um, another way of the the establishment asserting itself? Like, I, I'm wondering, like, how it is, like, if does it depend what we coming out of a crisis, we going into a crisis? <laughs> yeah, this is I, I, infinite I, crises. I don't. I, I don't think this is this is the political establishment reexerting itself uh, because the establishment is basically being routed on, yeah. on the ground. I remember I mean, when Trump took over the you yeah. know was a um, hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the question is how many it, it, how many insert any number of snide comments about Lindsey Graham contrasting what he said before Trump's election to now, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but will it last? Because that's the question. Because if it actually fractured my party so that it ends up, you know, sort of in trouble. You know, I, you could see all sorts of scenarios sort of just um, devolving from this point. Well, from the, 
from the point of view of the political establishment, I think that the way that the party system contains uh, this crisis is by addressing the chief social problem uh, in American society, I dare say, throughout the world today, which is mounting social inequality. Economic inequality. Economic inequality being among them, but not just that. And I and I think that um, you know thus far the political establishment has been unwilling to do anything outlandish or gutsy to actually deal um, with with that problem. So as I was saying to Sue during the break, sorry. Well, just so sorry. social inequality, it's not just about like uh, uh, the the investor class is scooping up all the money. It's also like white supremacy kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's not. Okay. It's not just, just economic inequality. It's also Black Lives Matter, for example. But it all. Yes, it's, it is. It is not just. It is not just about race. I mean, in the immediate right. aftermath of Trump's election, you have this massive outpouring of popular support among women for mm-hmm. you know sort of revived feminist agenda. Yeah. It's so. It's 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 not just economic inequality though. That is critical. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if the political establishment, you know, could actually deal with, you know, these the, these popular demands um, uh, to address inequality, I think they could actually contain this crisis. But the way that the Democratic uh, nomination fight is is going, I don't I don't actually think that um, that there's going to be help from that quarter. And with the Republicans. Um, all uh, singing in Trump's chorus, I don't think it's going to come from that uh, party either. And so the question is, what are we going to do, the people in this studio, the people out there on the street, what are we going to do to essentially take our politics back? back. Yeah. Right. That's that's the thing. And I, 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 I really believe that in order to get out of this particular crisis, we need another mass movement from below for some decency for some for you know addressing the needs um of uh, of uh, of folks who've been who have been left behind um so i mean and i think that we're actually seeing that happening right now right i mean teachers are not phone banking for the democratic party in la or the republican party in west virginia they're saying hell with those two parties i'm going out on strike to address yeah. the problem right. yep. of education in this country, right? And when they're, <clears throat> excuse me, when they're interested in in politics and political figures, they're interested in particular people who have a certain agenda. It's not like the Democrats. It's I love AOC, I love mm-hmm. Bernie, or mm-hmm. I love Elizabeth Warren. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I suppose there are a few people out there who are excited about Joe Biden, but uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't think excitement is the right word. Uh, perhaps not. (laughs) One of the things that these guys always torment me about is I like, um, big burly guys that know how to use power. (laughs) That's a, it's not quite accurate, but, but one of the things is that people know how to use power and know how to, to, to bring in the groups and to address real issues. And, and, and that's interesting that you're saying that, you know, if in the absence of that, it's actually a a groundswell of movement that, that changes the direction. Mm -hmm. So... Very, I just I'm I'm gonna have to go home and read your book again. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I, I I really think that you know apart from the political establishment stepping in to basically co-opt yep. uh, movements, the only other thing that has ever really uh, you know made this a more perfect union has been popular movements from below. It's just that's just a fact. 
abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, the labor movement, the women's movement. I mean, without these, we would be in a sorry state right now. And I think that we need to count, right, and trust in that, you know, um, that tradition of popular resistance to get out of our current crisis. I, yeah, well, I, our country wouldn't exist without that. I mean, yeah, it was definitely there was a, like a, 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 a wealthy elite that was like, like, hey, let's, we should break free from Great Britain. But, you know, that wasn't going to work until they had a whole lot of people willing to actually take up arms and fight under that banner. So, you know, even, you know, even from the, from the start, that's where our country is coming from. So, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh, I hear the music. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Sue, did you have a last question? No, 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 no. Okay, sorry, no, no, I didn't no. want to cut you off. What was the name of that book again? <laughs> <laughs> the book is Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, from Stanford University Press, by our uh, eloquent guest, Professor Cedric de Leon, uh, Professor of Sociology at director of uh, the Labor Center at UMass Amherst. Thanks so much for joining us, Cedric. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's going to do it for Civil Politics tonight here on Valley Free Radio. Uh, there's lots of cool music coming up uh, shortly, and there will be... Uh, you can listen to this uh, episode again next Monday at 4, and uh, it'll be uh, up on the various podcast sites over the weekend, so you can uh, enjoy us then. And uh, also, you can find the episode uh, uh, available to download anytime at our website, which is civilpoliticsradio.com. So, uh, I guess that's going to do it. Uh, John was giving me the (coughs) motion. So, thank you for listening to Civil Politics tonight. Uh, We'll be back next week. Good night. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.